amen to that. You know, this gospel we're going to be uh, reading from this morning, the gospel of John. If you want to turn to John chapter 1. How appropriate, because John does not refer to himself, uh, the apostle John, in this gospel. He he, however, he does refer to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And you could refer to yourself that way too. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you and I might have eternal life if we believe in him. Good to see uh, some of our folks back. I know we've had a tough time with uh, COVID and snowy weather and stuff. Merle Haggard, he, he had a song way back when, If We Make It Through December. Remember that one? I got a new song, If We Make It Through This Winter. <laughs> I think we're going to be okay, church. I do. I do. We're in the Gospel of John uh, this morning, the first uh, chapter. Last week we went through the prologue, that great preview, uh, marvelous bit of literature, uh, inspired scripture. And we're going to pick up in verse 19 today, right after the prologue. But before we do, I'm going to ask you to bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Lord, we just, uh, we do bow our hearts before you. I thank you for the privilege to share your word. And my prayer today is that they would hear you, that we would hear you, and that we would in turn follow Jesus, and that we would not be focused on anything else, but that our minds, our hearts, our affection, our uh, every part of our being would be focused in on who Jesus is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I'm just going to ask you for your help today, because I can't do anything without you. And Lord, just bless this sharing of, of the word today, and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we uh, come to our first slide this morning, the testimony uh, of John the Baptist. So if we can go on to the, the first slide here, uh, John's going to deal with seven days in a new creation. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you as you were reading uh, through the gospel of John, but there's a lot of parallels between Genesis and John, especially the beginning. Uh, Genesis 1 and John 1 open much the same way. In the beginning, uh, God, God is there. Now, John teaches us that Jesus Christ was the Logos. He was the word that was preexistent with the Father. And he was there before anything was made. But we're going to go through four days of this new creation week today. And next week, Lord willing, we'll begin... Uh, we'll, we'll finish out this week of creation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, I know I have enjoyed studying it. But we get to verse 19, and this is the testimony of John the Baptist. We, we got uh, echoes of this last week in the prologue. It says, and this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elias or Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then said they unto him, who are you? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, why, why baptizest thou then? If thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, nor that prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. 
He it is who coming before, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. So let's look at this first day here in the Gospel of John. What, what transpires in the first day? The first thing we read is that the Jews sent a delegation of priests and Levites. Now, when John speaks of the Jews, he's not speaking uh, of ethnicity so much usually. But here there is a negative connotation uh, almost always. And it speaks of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Now, it was appropriate for them to investigate what was going on with John. John the Baptist was making some waves. And that's putting it mildly. He was causing quite a stir uh, in the wilderness. Here this man comes on the scene. He has a strange diet. He has a strange manner of dress. He looks a lot like the prophet Elijah. You remember from uh, the, the Old Testament, Elijah, he's got this, uh, this strange apparel. He's a hairy guy, and he's just preaching. And, and just like Elijah, here John emerges from the wilderness, John the Baptist. And so the Jews... Uh, the Sanhedrin sends a delegation. Now, the Sanhedrin is a group of 70 uh, uh, individuals and comprised of uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, and, and so on. But they are the brightest and the best of uh, religious Judaism. And so the first thing is a question of identity. And they ask him uh, three questions. It's implied here that they've asked him if he's the Messiah. And he emphatically denies that he is uh, not the Messiah. We can infer that from his, uh, his vehement uh, confession there. But then they ask him two more things. And they said, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? And so I put some scriptures up here on the screen. For those that are not uh, able to see the PowerPoint, we do welcome you who are watching on Facebook. And those who are listening on the FM transmitter, we thank you for joining us. Uh, and those who are listening on the podcast. But Malachi 4.5 predicted that Elijah would come. Malachi 4.5, the Bible says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Even to, the, even to this day, when Passover seders are held, there is an empty chair in the, in the family's home, which is the chair of Elijah, because of this tradition. And so even now, religious Jews, they leave an empty chair and then at the end of the meal, uh, the father will go to the door. He'll open the door to see if Elijah's there. And if he's not there, then they say, well, maybe next year he'll come. Now, uh, the Bible predicts that Elijah will come before the coming of the Lord. And that's one reason I believe strongly. There's a number of reasons. I'm, I'm not going to get into all of them. I believe that he will be one of the two witnesses uh, in the book of uh, Revelation that it speaks of. Because the Bible says that Elijah will come again. Now, John the Baptist, however, uh, his father was told by the angel that John the Baptist would come in the spirit of Elijah. Not that he would be physically Elijah, but that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. Now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember, there were two Old Testament figures that meet with Jesus. And they have, uh, I call it a heavenly staff meeting, because they're talking about some things that are going to go on. And who were those two individuals that were on the, the, the mountain with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. I believe those are your two witnesses, but, you know, I've already showed you my hand on that. But um, when they come down from the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus, and they said, why do they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah is going to come first before the Messiah? 
And Jesus says, well, if you can receive it, Elijah has already come in the person of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, if Israel had received their Messiah in the first century, John the Baptist would have fulfilled the role of Elijah. Now God in his providence knew that they would not receive Jesus in his first coming. We've already read about that. He came into his own and his own received him not. But nevertheless, Jesus said, Elijah will come. Elijah is still coming, okay? So I believe that. Now, what about this issue of the prophet? This goes back to Deuteronomy. This was a promise made in Deuteronomy 18, 15. It says, the Lord thy God, Moses is speaking, uh, God through Moses. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, like unto Moses. Unto him shall you hearken. Now, in the early preaching of the church in the book of Acts, they, uh, they make the correlation between Jesus Christ and this prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy. And so uh, everyone in Judaism would understand that Elijah is coming before the Messiah and that there is this figure called the prophet. Now, what John is doing here in the wilderness, it has uh, apocalyptic overtones. These are end times kind of things that are happening. And so they send this delegation and they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he says, no. And they said, well, we need to give an answer. We can't just go back and, and, and give all these negative confessions. Well, he's not this and he's not that. Who, who are you? Okay. And so what John the Baptist says is he says, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice. Now, notice Jesus is the logos. Jesus is the word, but John is the voice. And we, we would do well to imitate John the Baptist here. God is supreme. Jesus Christ is the word. You and I are just the mouthpiece. We're just beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. Uh, as, as the old saying goes, I'm just a uh, nobody telling everybody that there's somebody that will save anybody. Hallelujah. And that's John. He said, I'm the voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, when Isaiah spoke this, this was speaking of the Jews and their return out of exile from Babylon. And making straight the way of the Lord speaks of preparing the road, uh, getting all the, the crooked places, uh, uh, filling in. Let me put it to you in a way you can understand. Filling in all the potholes before the, the president comes to visit. Uh, we would have quite a task if we tried to do that, wouldn't we? <laughs> Try to fill That'd be quite a, but that's the imagery here, is that we're preparing the way. John the Baptist, his ministry was a preparatory ministry. It was anticipatory. It was not a, uh, um, an, in, an end in itself. Okay. Now it says in verse 24, they which were sent were of the Pharisees. By the way, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. So these guys know their Bible backwards and forwards. They asked him and said unto him, why baptize you? The first question was the question of identity. Now it's the question of authority. Okay, well, if you're not the prophet, if you're not John the Baptist, if you're not the Messiah, if, why are you baptizing? Who gave you the right to do this? <laughs> and John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. Interesting enough, I mentioned this last week. You could, uh, Gentiles could convert to Judaism, but they would have to be baptized. But they would, they would do so by self-baptism. They would enter this thing called a mikvah. 
and it was self-baptism. But here John was baptizing the people. They were not baptizing themselves, which is not all that radical in and of itself. But the radical thing was is that John the Baptist was not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. He's baptizing God's chosen people, the ones who have got a, a ticket punched to heaven, so to speak, or so they think. And what John's teaching us is that, listen, it doesn't matter who your earthly parents are. It doesn't matter what your lineage is. You must be born again. You have to repent of your sins and make room for the king, the son of God. But notice he says, I baptize with water, but this is an indictment on them. You, it might not be evident on the surface. But he says, there stands one among you whom you do not know. You see, there's the theme of light and darkness here. And there's also some geographical overtones that we're, we can't really appreciate, I don't think. But this delegation that has come to him is from uh, Jer Jerusalem or Judea. That's where all the brightest and best of uh, Israel were, were in Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's where the Sanhedrin or the ruling body. But uh, by and large, Jesus is rejected in Jerusalem. But he's accepted in the common places. But this is an indictment. In essence, John the Baptist is saying, look, you guys have all memorized the Old Testament. But the Messiah is here among you and you can't see him. You see. There's this theme, again, going back to the prologue of light and darkness. Okay. John is a light. Those who are responding to John the Baptist's preaching, they are coming into the light. But here, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are in darkness. God is among them and they do not realize it. What a tragedy. John says, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me. Whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. Now that's a strange phrase for us. Uh, loosing the thong of the sandal. This was, by the way, the most menial of tasks that a servant would do for his master. The mass, it, was, it was such a menial thing that in Jerusalem, a, a, a teacher was not allowed to request this of his pupil. That's how menial the task was, was to go in and uh, remove the, the sandal. And this is foreign to us, right? We can't fathom. These, but this is a different culture in a different time. This was the, the, the most menial task of a slave was to remove the sandal of the master and to wash his feet. But John says, I am not worthy to do this most menial of tasks. Amazing. Let me say this to you. You are who you are in God's estimation, not in your own estimation. Be careful. Sometimes we see ourselves a certain way, but God sees us a different way. John says, I'm not Elijah. I'm not worthy to take off the sandal of Jesus. But what did Jesus say about John the Baptist? He said, this is the greatest man who ever lived. Amazing, isn't it? What did he say about John the Baptist? He said, John the Baptist is Elijah if you will receive it. You see? But John had no concept. May I suggest to you that you and I ought to be little in our own estimation of ourselves and let Jesus be the big thing in our life. Let people not see us. Let them see Jesus. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. All right. Now, there's some uh, dispute and debate as to where this place in verse 28 is, so I'm not going to dwell on that. Let's go to the next slide. 
I'm not sure exactly where Beth Abra was. But now we get to day number two in this new creation week. Day number two, it says, the next day John sees Jesus coming unto him, and he says something rather strange. He doesn't say, behold the Messiah, behold the Christ. He says, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man, which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining, or abiding, on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Okay, let's look at day number two. What about this? Why does John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God? Now, did John understand that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die for the sins of the whole world? I don't know that he did. Because when John was put into prison, remember he sent some people to Jesus, and he says, are you the one that's going to come, or do we look for another? So I'm not sure that John the Baptist fully understood the sacrificial and the vicarious uh, suffering of Jesus Christ. He may have, okay? Um, but but I'm, not, I'm not positive. But this imagery of a sacrificial lamb goes all the way back to Genesis and the story of Abraham being told to go up to Mount Moriah and offer Isaac as an offering. And remember, Isaac asked a question, and he says, you know, Dad, I see, I'm paraphrasing here, Dad, I see all of the paraphernalia here, but where's the offering? And notice what God says, Abraham says in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. For a burnt offering so they went both of them together one of these days I'm gonna preach on Genesis 22 and I'm gonna show you this thing's got more layers than an onion a Vidalia onion Vidalia the L is silent it's a Y that's what my grandmother used to say it's a Vidalia onion but uh, there's so many things that you could see here but we see uh, when Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain we see a picture of the father who would take his son so, so when we talk about Jehovah Jireh, and, and Abraham understood this, you see, because Abraham built an altar, and he called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. That's what Jehovah Jireh means. His provision will be seen. Okay. Now, God takes care of all of our needs, right? Never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. God takes care of me. I've never, I've never missed too many meals. And don't say amen. I know you can look at me and tell that. Had missed too many meals. But when we talk about Jehovah Jireh, understand it's bigger than God just putting uh, food on your table. It's about God providing the sacrifice that was necessary for you and I to be in fellowship with God. Amen. When we say Jehovah Jireh, we think, we're thanking God that he did provide himself a lamb without spot, without blemish, foreordained before the foundation of the world. What about this Passover lamb? Now we are approaching in John's gospel this first Passover and we're going to see that in just a few uh, subsequent chapter, verses and chapters. And I can just imagine that all, as people are making their pilgrimage, as they would to Jerusalem for the, th the three pilgrim feasts, as they're making the pilgrimage, there's probably uh, quite a few sheep around. You probably hear the bleeding of the sheep in the background. You know, the anticipation of the Passover. This great uh, uh, historical 
event in the history of the nation of Israel when God, that tenth plague, as the children of Israel were leaving Egypt and the, the passing over the death of the firstborn, and God commanded Moses and the children of Israel to, to kill the lamb and to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, to the lintel. And when God would see the blood, he would pass over. And when God sees the blood now, he will pass over you Amen. and me. Hallelujah. Isaiah 53 also speaks of the suffering of Christ. Verse 7. Speaking of the Messiah. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. You see that's why when Pilate and those were examining Jesus Christ. He, he uttered not a word other than um, what God had ordained him to do. Because he was fulfilling Isaiah 53. 7. He says behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. We're getting back to verse 29 here. Now again, this is different because in their minds, God's only going to take away the sins of the Jews because they're chosen people. But John says, this thing is too big just for Israel. This, this sacrifice of this, this one, this Lamb of God, it's too great for just one ethnic group. It's, it's powerful enough to save the whole world. Amen. One drop of Jesus' blood is sufficient to save the whole world. I believe that. I believe that. And you and I, uh, we have boldness to enter into the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus. Glory to God. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Glory to God. This is he of whom I said, after me comes the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Uh, even though John was about six months older than Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus uh, is from everlasting. He's eternal. And he's preeminent. Now notice John says in verse 31, and I knew him not. This kind of rattled my, my chain a little bit this week as I was studying because I thought, well, you know, Jesus and John are related. Uh, some take a real dogmatic stance and say they were second cousins or third cousins. You know, I couldn't say for sure, but they are related. And so I don't think it's that John didn't realize, you know, that Jesus was alive. I mean, he knew they were kinfolk. <laughs> Right? You know who your cousins are. And you like some of them. <laughs> but you know who your kinfolk are. Oh, what you, you don't look at me like that. You know, we used to, they don't do family reunions anymore, but, you know, you remember how it was. You'd sit down at the table with the folks that you did like. You always sit with your own folks that you like, and you got these other ones, and, you know, all right, Henry, shut up. <laughs> but, but, but John says, I didn't know him. He said, I didn't. I believe what John's saying here is, I didn't know he was the Messiah. Not that I didn't know who he was, but, I mean, after all, Nazareth's not a big place. <laughs> Galilee's not a huge place. But he said, I didn't know who he was. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. That's what the baptism of Jesus was all about. Some people say, why was Jesus baptized? Well, you know what? What's that all about? This was his presentation to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. And John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode. That word in abode in the King James uh, is the word minnow, and it means to abide or to remain. It remained upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize, and who was that? The Father. With water. The same said unto me, upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending. And what's that phrase say? Remaining on him. 
The same as he who baptizes with the Holy Ghost. This is how Jesus is different from all the Old Testament guys. The Spirit of God came on Moses, but then he, he lifted off. Spirit of God came upon David, but then he, you know, lifted off. Spirit of God came upon Samson, came upon Saul, uh, came upon various ones in the Old Testament. But here, the Spirit of God came on Jesus, and he never left. In the book of Acts, Peter says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Amen. The Spirit of God remained upon Jesus. <laughs> and John said, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Man, here again we get this eyewitness testimony, bearing record, bearing testimony. All right, day number two. Let's go to day number three. Day number three. And the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus, now in the Greek, it means to fix his gaze upon him. Picture Jesus walking, and John is just zeroed in on him. He's watching the lamb everywhere that he goes. It's amazing to me. John the Baptist, his preaching ministry doesn't seem extremely eloquent, does it? But it was highly effective because it was sincere and it was anointed by God. The anointing of God makes all the difference. He fixed his eyes on Jesus as he walked. And I can just imagine... Has anybody ever been to any event uptown, maybe a concert or ball game or something? And remember the guy in the street, and he, he would always scream, Jesus saves. Anybody remember him? He got in trouble for that. But that's just kind of the way I picture John the Baptist preaching. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus, and he's got one simple message. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. And as the people are watching and beholding, it says that there were two disciples who heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, that's the success of any preacher, is that they'll hear the preacher, but they'll follow Jesus. You see, we got too many folks following preachers. You know, if, if you hear the preacher and you follow the preacher, if you hear me and you follow me, I have failed in my responsibilities. I have failed miserably. But if you hear me preach, but you don't hear me, you hear God's word, and you follow Jesus, then I've been a success in my endeavors, you see. Because he must increase, and I must decrease. Two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Wow. <laughs> then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto him, now, the King James says, what seekest thou? But it's translated, what are you looking for? This is the first recorded words of God to fallen man in the gospel. Is that the first red letter words in your? It should be. <laughs> what are you looking for? You know, the first recorded question to fallen man in the book of Genesis is to Adam, where are you? Now, it wasn't as if God had lost Adam. Uh, Lori and I, we've got a cat and a dog, and when they go missing, we go in a panic, especially the cat, because he's like a ter holy terror. <laughs> and, you know, that's the first thing we do. Where's the cat? 
We walk because you know he's going to be tearing the blinds up. Or he's our cat's blind and he runs like a bull in a china shop. He's a strange, real strange guy. He knocks over stuff. He can't see where he's going. He he like bust into the island in the kitchen and knock just about knock it over. I feel sorry for him, and that's why I don't get rid of him. You know, because I have pity on him. And Lori loves him. She he's he's her cat. But it's not as if God lost Adam. Oh, where is he? Where do we put him? No. He wanted a response from Adam. Where are you, Adam? He was looking for a confession. And what did Adam do? He started playing the blame game just like we do. Well, God, it's her fault. It's his fault. It's your fault. These are the first recorded words of God to the new creation, fallen man in this new creation week. He says, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a political leader? Are you looking for somebody to overthrow Rome? Uh, are you looking for someone to put you in a position of power? Let me ask you, why did you come here today? What are you looking for this morning? God's asking you and me that same question. What are, what are you looking for? That's a profound question. And they ask him, uh, they said to him, Rabbi, uh, in verse 38, and I love John, he interprets some things for us, some Hebrew idioms and stuff. Just in case you don't know what a rabbi is, John says, well, it means master. <laughs> uh, where dwellest thou? Amazing. Where are you staying? That's the question they would ask. You think of all the questions that you would, you know, if you had a chance to have an interview with Jesus, you know, what would you ask him? Where are you staying? <laughs> I don't know that that would be first, but I think we're supposed to, to read into this that they want to spend some more time with him. They want further investigation. They asked Jesus, where are you dwelling? And I don't think they had the foggiest notion that Jesus wanted to live in them. They're asking this question, where are you? And they had no idea that Jesus wanted to live in them, you see. Next week, we're going to see Jesus going to a wedding, but he's looking for a bride at a wedding. That's just a little teaser for you. Where do you dwell? And Jesus, instead of answering with information, he gives an invitation. Sorry, I couldn't resist. He says, come and see. You know, that's what God says to you and to me today. You have questions about him. Uh, God's not afraid of your questions. God says, come and see. Investigate for yourself. They came and saw where he dwelt, and they abode with him that day. Now, interesting, there's a time stamp in verse 39. It was about the 10th hour. Now, if, there, if it's Roman time, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. If they're speaking in Hebrew time, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. But why on earth is this here? Why do we need to know that it's the fourth hour? <laughs> why do we, know, we didn't need to know that it's the tenth hour? Here's what I believe. I believe that Andrew was one of those disciples. But I believe the other disciple is the unnamed disciple, John. And John is all about eyewitness testimony. And I believe the reason that John puts it in here, that it was four o'clock in the afternoon... It's because he was there. And I believe that moment in time changed the rest of his life. I believe that from that moment on, he remembers that so vividly that it transformed his life. That it was about the 10th hour of the day. The first day, the first day that I met Jesus. The first day that I had him answer all of my questions. 
Now, I'm going to tell you something, guys. I can't remember the exact date that I got saved. And one of the reasons is because I prayed that sinner's prayer three or four times. I'm not sure which one of them took, but thank God one of them did. (laughs) (laughs) But I will tell you this. December the 1st, 1996, I was praying in my prayer closet. And as I began to pray, I had what I can only describe as an otherworldly experience. And I was filled with the Holy Ghost that night. You know, and I'll tell you what, I'll never forget that. Uh, Yes, I was already saved, but I believe Jesus Christ became so real to me in that moment. And I don't live for, you know, I don't go from one experience to the next. And I don't know that I've had one since then. But I'll never forget that day praying and feeling the Spirit of God and understanding that this Jesus of Nazareth is not only alive, but he's living in me. Glory to God. It was about the tenth hour. Now, one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. In case you don't know who Andrew is, John says, well, he's Peter's brother. (laughs) I was talking with a lady this week on the phone. She's on a committee that I serve. And and she said, you know, nobody knows who I am. But if I tell them who my husband is, everybody knows my husband. And some of you, you've got relatives like that. You know, if you mention their name, oh, I'm so-and-so's, then then they can uh, identify you. Andrew, bless his heart. You know, all we ever see Andrew doing in the Bible is bringing people to Jesus. But I suppose he's best known as being Peter's brother. Uh, he's, in the words of Bette Midler, he's the wind beneath Peter's wings. <laughs> he, he's there, <laughs> always in the shadow. You know, uh, Billy Graham, uh, when he would organize his crusades in the early days, he would have what they called Operation Andrew. And he would send out uh, materials, and he would get people to list all of their relatives and friends and co-workers that desperately needed to know Jesus. And in the days leading up to the crusade, he would really put a push to invite all of these people to come to an evangelistic meeting. You know, I think we could all learn a little something from Andrew. Are you bringing people to Jesus? Notice what Andrew did. Verse 41, Andrew first finds his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Thank you again, John, for interpreting Hebrew idioms for us. In case you don't know what the Messiah is, he's the Christos. He's the, the anointed one. And he, and meaning Andrew, brought him, meaning Peter, to Jesus. Amazing. Now, do you think Peter was probably... One of those guys that just kind of sucked all the air out of the room when he came in. I mean, I think he was. I think Peter's one of those guys, when, when Peter came into the room, everybody else kind of took a back seat. He's got this, person, this big personality, larger than life. And Andrew knows, probably, that if Peter meets Jesus, you know, he's going to be back in the shadows again. But he loved, let me tell you something, folks. If you love Jesus, you can't keep this to yourself. You can't be content just to go to heaven by yourself. you got to want to take people with you. And he wanted to take Peter with him. He wanted his brother. And he brought Peter to Jesus. Operation Andrew. He brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, I can only imagine what Jesus was thinking when he saw him. Jesus knows everything Peter's ever going to do. I mean, he's God. He told Peter he was going to deny him before Peter ever denied him. He knew everything. He knew every failure Peter was ever going to do. 
I saw this on Facebook, and I, it's not biblical, but it, it resonates with me. When God called you and me, he already factored in all of our stupidity. I mean, he did. He knew every, everything you were going to do. And I can just imagine, he sees Peter coming to him. Man. Peter's a diamond, but he's, he's probably pretty rugged at this point. Jesus says, you are Simon, son of John. But you will be called Kepha in Aramaic, Cephas, Petros in the Greek, Peter. Which is by interpretation a stone. Thank you again, John, for giving us some insight into idioms here. Peter, you are. Simon, you are. But you will be the rock. And wasn't he the rock? We find Peter standing up. You know, the, the last part of the Gospels, we see Peter warming himself by the fire, denying that he knows Jesus. But on the day of Pentecost, one of my favorite phrases, it says on the day of Pentecost and all this stuff's happening and the people are saying, well, these guys are drunk. And it says that Peter stood up and he preached that powerful sermon and 3,000 people got saved. Peter was the rock of the early church, no doubt. But the point I want to make to you is that God's not so much interested in what you are because everybody in this room is a work in progress. But God sees your potential. He sees what you can be. Remember what he says earlier in the prologue? He said, he came into his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to what? To become the sons of God. You have no idea what you can become. Everybody in this room, you are filled with potential. Every one of you in this room, you are absolutely filled with potential. And the devil does a great job of giving this tunnel vision myopia where we say, well, this is all I am. This is what I was. This is all I'll ever be. And God says, no, 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 no. You don't realize your potential. You are Simon, but you will be Peter the Rock. Peter was a nickname. Peter wasn't his last name or even his first name. Peter was a nickname. stone all right let's go to day number four this will be the last day of the week for those of you who are keeping score day number four the day following jesus would go forth into galilee okay so we're, we're changing geographies but we're also changing spiritual climate going into galilee and here jesus finds philip and he says unto him, follow me. Now, uh, the two disciples, Andrew and probably John, I could not say dogmatically for sure that John is the unnamed disciple. That's my opinion, okay? I don't want to go beyond what's written. But I think the context leads you to believe that perhaps John is the unnamed disciple. John, perhaps, and Andrew, they come to Christ because of the preaching of John the Baptist. Okay? Peter comes to Jesus because of the witness of Andrew. But here, we find that Philip is sought out by Jesus. It says, Jesus, in verse 43, it says, Christ, he found Philip and simply said unto him, follow me. I wish it were that easy <laughs> to get converts. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, which means house of fishing, house of fishing. And Jesus is fishing for men here. 
and he'll make them fishers of men. You realize that most of these apostles uh, were, fish, were fishermen. They, they come from fishing villages. They were, they were fishermen. But I'm going to shatter a myth for you here in just a moment. Now, Philip finds Nathaniel, verse 45. Now, Nathaniel, uh, he's not mentioned in the other Gospels. Most people believe that he is the, the disciple Bartholomew. And that's a Hebrew, uh, that's a very Hebraic, Semitic name. Bartholomew means uh, son of Ptolemy. And so it's not, it's not surprising that John would just go ahead and interpret that for us too. I believe the fact that he calls him Nathaniel. Uh, he doesn't call him by a Hebrew name, but, but Nathaniel. He finds him, and he says unto him, we have found him. That's interesting. Philip says, we found Jesus, but what did it say in verse 43? Uh, it says that Jesus found him. It's amazing how our perspectives are. We think we found Jesus, but he, found, he wasn't lost. <laughs> uh, Philip was lost, and Jesus found him. But he says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, here's what, something I want you to see. A lot of times when people talk about the, the disciples, the apostles, they picture them as these unlearned, uneducated hillbillies, hicks, who just, you know, had no common sense and, and, uh, and didn't know how to do anything. But what we see from, from this is that these guys actually knew their Bibles. And here's the shocker. It would seem that they knew their Bible better than the Sanhedrin did. Oh, yeah. Don't miss that. I'm convinced we got some Bible scholars here in Peachtree, North Carolina. That I'd sit and listen to before I'd sit and listen to some deadhead in some liberal seminary somewhere. Don't ever underestimate what God can do with a common person. May not have a formal degree, but my, my goodness, don't. Don't underestimate what God can do. Now, I'm not against education, okay, by any means. But what we find here is that these guys know the Word of God. The Sanhedrin know it, but they can't figure out who Jesus is. But these guys, these fishermen knew their Bibles, but they, they were able to see who Jesus was. The light bulb came on with them. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, we can't fault Philip for not knowing that, uh, that Jesus was, uh, that Joseph was only his guardian. Um, they're still in the early stages here. But that was a common way to refer to, to G Joseph was Jesus' legal guardian. All right, verse 46, Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You can laugh there if you want to, it's okay. That's intended to be comical. I imagine there was some rivalry. Now, we, we learn later in the Gospel of John that Nathanael is from Cana of Galilee. And I can imagine that Cana and Nazareth were probably rival cities. Now, I, I have adopted Peachland as my home. I love Peachland. But I'm from Marshville. And I went to Forest Hills. Now, I know some of you, you're getting mad just thinking about it. Now, when I was in school, the Forest Hills had a football team. I mean, those guys were like, I don't know, seven feet tall, 300 pounds, you know. Every one of them, they were some big old boys. And you know who we hated more than anybody? Anson. <laughs> Couldn't stand them, you know. 
So, so if you had told me that the Messiah was from Anson County, I said, can any good thing come out of Anson County? No. Okay, you got to get the flavor of this, don't you? But, but here's something. All kidding aside, Nathaniel apparently knows his Bible. Amen? The law and the prophets. And he understands that as far as Nazareth is concerned, the scriptures are silent. I mean, pretty much so. We know that Christ is born where? Bethlehem. And he lived, he grew up, he, he, he was a resident of Nazareth. So as far as Nathaniel's concerned, uh, Nazareth has no real significance in the scripture. Okay? So that's why, he's, that, that's why he makes that statement. It's not just that he hates people from another county or <laughs> from another city. <clears throat> All right. Now what does Philip say unto him? Come and see. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Like Jesus rubbed off on him now. He says, we're not going to have a Bible debate here. We're not going to argue. I'm not going to try to convince you. Just come see for yourself. You know, some folks just need to see for themselves. And so, Jesus saw Nathanael coming. And he said unto him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Dear me. What a strange thing to say. Aren't all these guys Israelites? Yeah. Well, what does Paul say? They're not all Israel who were of the seed of Abraham. You see. Those Jews in Jerusalem, they were Jews. They were the, the, they were the descendants of Abraham. But they were not true Israel. Let me say it to you this way, and I think you might get what's going on here. Let me, re, let me re, reword the words of Jesus, and I'm going to do so very, very carefully. Behold, verse 47, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no Jacob. The word guile here is pretty much the same Greek word used to describe Jacob in the Old Testament. And if you know Jacob, you know that Jacob, he was a trickster, wasn't he? He was a deceiver. He was a trickster. But Jacob wrestled with the angel of God. And, and part of the result of that, number one, he walked with a limp the rest of his life. But number two, he got a new name out of it. And what was Jacob renamed? Israel. Ah. Oh. There's more here that meets the eye, I believe. I believe this shows the believing remnant of Israel. I believe Nathaniel stands as a type of believing Israel, a remnant. The majority of Jesus' own came, that he came into his own. His, the majority didn't receive him. The Jews and those in Judea, largely, by and large, they rejected Jesus. He, stand, he stood among them, but they didn't understand him. They didn't comprehend him, couldn't perceive him. But Nathaniel stands representative of believing Israel. A true Israelite in whom is no guile. You know, God's not afraid of real people. He's not afraid of people being... What God has no appreciation for is self-righteous, facade, hypocrisy, pretending to be something when you're nothing. God has no respect for that. But God can handle truth. It says, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel said to him, when do you know me? <laughs> How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said, before that Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, I believe also the fig tree here stands as an idiom for Israel. Don't have time to go into all that. 
but it was said that in, in ancient times that this was often a time of quiet meditation and contemplation. Someone would sit under a fig tree and meditate and pour over the scriptures. And I believe, I just happen to believe, this is Henry talking here. This is not God's word here. I just happen to believe that Nathaniel was probably reading the story about Jacob and Jacob's ladder. I believe, I, I believe that he was under that tree reading and thinking about that. What does this mean? You know? And he says, before you were under the fig tree, I saw you. God sees you. I think the devil does a, a, a mighty fine job. I don't want to brag on him, but I think he does a mighty fine job of convincing people that God doesn't know where they are or know who they are. How many times have you thought to yourself, God, do you even know where I am? God, do you even know where I'm going through? God, do you see me? I know you see other people. I know you see their plight. I know you're blessing this guy over here and this guy over here, but can you see me? Do you even know where I am, God? And Jesus let Nathaniel know, hey, I see you. I see you. God said that to you this morning. I see you. And that shouldn't just strike terror in your heart. You think, oh, God, God can see everything I'm doing. Yeah, well, he can. But, but understand this. God sees everything, and he loves you anyway. God sees. He knows everything about you, and he sees you. You know, he could have blown Nathaniel's mind. <clears throat> Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus could have said, well, I made you. <clears throat> he didn't take that approach with him. Because I think Nathaniel probably would have had a stroke, you know, if, if he'd have said that. Jesus knows that we can handle. And he knew, he knew just what it would take to get Nathaniel to a place of faith. And he said, under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel takes a quantum leap. Look at verse 49. <laughs> This is a quantum leap. He goes from being, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To what confession did he make? Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Wow. And all Jesus said was, I saw you under the fig tree. So that tells me that there was something really, something really special about that experience under the fig tree. That it may not have meant anything to anybody else. But it was all Nathaniel needed to get him to a place of faith. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than thee. The you here is plural. He's not just talking to Nathaniel. He's talking to these other believers. And to you and I. Nathaniel's going to witness something. Nathaniel's about to witness the first miracle in his hometown of Cana of Galilee. He's about to see the Son of God turn the water into wine. But he's going to go on to see him heal blinded eyes. He's going to see the man at the pool of Bethesda who's been in a terrible shape for 38 years get healed. He's going to see a man born blind from his birth. He's going to see the Son of God feed 15,000 people and then follow it up by walking on the water. He's going to see Lazarus laying in that grave, stinking for four days and coming out smelling like a newborn baby. He's going to see all this stuff. But ultimately, 
He's going to see Jesus die on a cross and rise again in a glorified body. He said, you're going to see greater things than these. And can I say this to you, Deep Springs Church? I'm going to stand here. I'm not a prophet, but I'm going to prophesy. I know Deep Springs has seen some moves of God in history and has seen some great things. I believe that Deep Springs is going to see some greater things than we've ever seen before. I speak it by faith. I believe, therefore, I speak. And it's not because of Henry Haney. It's not because of you. It's because of Jesus Christ and because of his sovereign plan and his Holy Spirit. So would you believe with me to see greater things here in this place, to see it move into the highways, the byways, and the hedges? I want to see, I want to see people busting in the door to get in here on Sunday morning. You say, well, that's not possible. We live in the COVID. Hey, with God, anything's possible. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. And these are the last days. My goodness. Would you believe with me? All right. Verse 51. This is the first of the verily, verily statements. In the Greek, it's amen, amen, or amen, amen. These are the first of amen statements in uh, the Gospels. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is him letting the, these disciples know, and I believe Bartholomew in particular, Nathaniel, because I believe he was reading about Jacob's ladder. He's saying, guys, look, I am the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. I am the ladder from earth to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let's look at this last slide, and then I'm, I'm, I'm closing. You notice in the first chapter of John, Jesus Christ has three titles. You'll never exhaust praising the Lord. One of the things I love to do in my private devotions is to just worship the different names of God. Just praise Him for who He is. Not about what he can do for me, but just praise him for who he is. He's the eternal word. He's the logos, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the true light of the world. He is the son of God, the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah, Hamashiach. He is the anointed one, Christos. He's the king of Israel. Amazing that Nathaniel came to that point of faith. Jesus Christ in that last verse refers to himself as the son of man. That's one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself is son of man. And if you remember from our studies in Daniel, remember in that seventh chapter of Daniel, in that vision, and he saw one that was like unto the son of man and he came into the ancient of days, and he received a kingdom that would never end. And that, my friends, is Jesus Christ. I ask you today, do you know him? Do you know him? Would you stand? Behold the Lamb of God. This morning, we've had just a moment to behold the Lamb. We could spend all day long beholding him and, and still not even scratch the surface of all that he is and all that he has done for us. But I leave you with this thought. Jesus Christ came to this world 
as a baby, born of a virgin. He lived the life that you and I could never live, a perfect life. He suffered unjustly, unfairly. He died for your sin and for my sin upon the cross. And he was buried in that borrowed tomb. And he rose again the third day. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he gives you the same invitation that he extended to those first disciples of John the Baptist. He says, come and see. And so rather than making a lengthy appeal here, I will give you the same invitation that Jesus did. And I ask you, if you will, come and see.